sec. Here to record the third part of my series of videos on Buddhism and nature. So it's daytime, we have a lighter video. Uh, in this part, I wanted to talk about uh, nature in a different sort of way than the last two videos. So if you recall, uh, the first two ways you can think of nature, uh, or you know, two of the ways, the two ways I talked about, are first of all in terms of being something different from the human, the artificial, we might say. So if anything human is considered artificial, then what is not human is nature. And the second way, the second video was about uh, human nature and the idea of what is nature in, in that debate over nature and nature versus nurture which I didn't mention, but would have been something good to to, uh, to mention. I, I can see your, I'm on my phone, but I can see your comments still. They pop up on my screen, it's kind of neat. Uh, so I'm, I'm flying today to Florida, that's why I'm doing it at this time of day. I thought before I leave I'll do this video that I've been dragging my feet on a bit. So, I guess the first thing I'd uh, I'd mention, something that I think I mentioned in the other videos, is that those two ways of thinking about nature are not really um, not really nature according to Buddhism. They're not the ultimate nature. So, this third way of thinking about nature, I would, I would define it as <clears throat> nature is that which is, uh, that which exists independent of fabrication, which is kind of similar to the idea of that which is not artificial. But I like the word fabric fabrication here, and I'll try to explain why. So what is it that's free from fabrication? In modern times, most people would, I think, those who are unfamiliar with or have def are, are not in line with Buddhist ideas of nature, would say that it's the world around us. It's the physical world, right? the universe. The atomic and subatomic particles, the quantum fields, um, 
it's the people, the places, the things, well, not people, I guess, but the, yeah, it's even the people and the places and things, all of that is nature. Reality is another word they might use, although that's kind of a, has some spiritual connotations that they might not like. So what is nature? Nature is the third-person impersonal world, independent of experience. Of course, because fabrication, they would say, is all what we experience. What we experience is all, all made up of fabrication. What is not fabricated is, is that which is outside of experience. And there's some uh, there's some argument that to be made there against that, like uh, the argument from the point of view of magic or extrasensory per perceptions. So if someone says that there are these uh, things that exist out there, well, I can say. Well, what if there's a being who is tricking us into thinking that there is something out there, there are these things out there? And they might say that, well, you can independently verify that those things exist. I might be able to be tricked, but I can ask other people and they'll tell me the same thing. I say, well, what if, what if this being is really special and, and is tricking all of us? And they might say, well, we have these instruments and machines, but ultimately, I've even talked to scientists who say, you know, we can't really deny the possibility that God exists. Because no matter what laws or theories we have, uh, ultimately, they could all just be tricks that God is playing on us. This is the problem that Rene Descartes wrestled with by the way. I bring him up a lot. You've probably heard me, some of you, many of you, talk about him. I just found it kind of neat that he was saying something. I, I, I'm not a follower, or, or I, I don't agree with many of the things he said, but I thought it was interesting, this very famous saying of his, Cogito Ergo Sum. He wrestled with this. He said, how do we know any of this? How do I know anything? I mean, his idea was, how do I know I exist. What can I say about myself? And he realized there was something he could say about himself. It's cogito. Cogito means I cognize. Ergo, therefore, sum, I am. Why? Because you can't be tricked into thinking that you're thinking. Anyway, so there's, there's this debate about whether this stuff outside actually exists. I, th I think scientists, rightfully so, tend to dismiss the arguments against it, saying, first of all, we have no evidence to suggest that there is such a, a being. We have no reason to think that there's such a being. And based on the law of parsimony, parsim, parsimony, Occam's razor, we have to say it's wrong. It's wrong to suggest something extraneous without any reason. Exceptional claims require exceptional evidence. That's the idea.
And that's right, there is no reason to think that this stuff around us doesn't exist. There's no reason. It would be silly to suggest there is such a being. Suggesting God is a silly idea. It's just silly. You can believe in God. But it's, it's no reason. It's like Russell said, Bertrand Russell said, uh, I, I could postulate a teapot orbiting the sun. You can't disprove it. How are you going to find out if there isn't one? How are you going to prove to me that there isn't one? He said, God is like that. There's no evidence for such a teapot. And so it, it, it appears quite reasonable to suggest that that which is beyond fabrication is this impersonal world that physics has, has uh, come up with, classical physics. Of course, then we get into the fact that quantum physics defies the laws of physics goes against classical physics, shows that classical physics is only an approximation, it's only makeshift. And kind of sort of shakes up this idea that there is some uh, reality out there. You know, many of the theories behind quantum physics rely upon the idea that uh, the physical reality requires observation to exist measurement, right? So there are other ways to measure, but there appears to be something, some room for uh, experience. But that's not really... Um, th there's a problem that is missed in all of this discussion. And that's where Buddhism comes in. Now, it, I think it's difficult, if you haven't done any meditation, to appreciate the argument. So I want to preface everything by, with, with, by that. Because if you haven't spent time with experience, then your, your, your immediate um, habit is to see everything as, as uh, impersonal, external things. Like you look at a chair and immediately you see it as a chair. And what's wrong with that? I want to point out what's the problem with that. The problem with saying that that chair is outside of fabrication is that psychologically what's happening let's not take out the word psychology psychologically for a moment what's happening when you uh, when you see the chair and, and recognize that it's a chair is that it's at least a two-step process. In the main, there are two steps going on there. There's the experience of seeing, and then there's the mental process which identifies that uh, chair 
as a chair. There's in fact more going on there. There's the process of um, relating the chair to other chairs that you've seen, first of all. That's called sanya. Sanya means this is like that. This is like, this goes with that. So you see a chair and there's a, like this, uh, there's this process of, of um, comparing it with other things. That's like this. That's like those things I've seen. Those things are all chairs, therefore this is a chair. It's a two-step process. There's fabrication involved, you see. And that's significant. The important thing to understand is that's significant. And, and what I think much of science fails to appreciate is the effect, the, the consequences of having a mental paradigm, a psychological paradigm, an ontological paradigm, I guess is, is how you say it, um, based on this impersonal external world. It's not even a question anymore of who's right. It's a question of the consequences, the effects of having such a complex uh, experience or, or, or yeah, a way of living where everything, everything you experience is filtered through this process of fabrication, mental fabrication. And so from a Buddhist perspective, it's unnatural. This complicated, complex, fabrication-based state of reality. Because ultimately, I mean, it leads to questions about what is real. The, the teapot circling the earth, circling the sun, God, or the chair. And psychologically, they have all the same, they involve the same processes. When, when it rains, when it rains and you say, oh, that's, uh, that's because of evaporation and condensation and warm and cold, warm and cold air and so on and so on. I don't know how it works, but um, you're fabricating. You could say you're engaging in, in, in belief statements. You're engaging in the process of belief. 
Because what is belief? Belief is a mental fabrication. Belief is uh, taking an experience and extrapolating on it, trying to understand it. So when I engage in this process of saying, that rain is because of this, I'm, I'm engaging in a certain mental process. All scientific theories are like this, right? If you have a scientific theory about how things happen and what is the truth of things and what are things made of, you're engaging in a process of extrapolation and there is mental fabrication going on. And you're creating these ideas in your mind. When you, when you say, oh, it's God, why is it raining? Well, you know, God is making it rain. Maybe God is crying, right? People might say. And you're doing the same thing. In, in science, they call this idea um, the difference between justified true belief and just belief. You have belief. Well, not all belief is justified or true. But psychologically, psychologically it's the same. It's still belief. And the process is still the same. It's complex. And it's abstract. And it's this abstraction that allows for, as you can, as you can, I think, tell, that leads to to uh, misunderstanding, leads to wrong view, that opens the door to wrong view, and opens the door to clinging, and opens the door to reacting. opens the door to arguing and debating. It opens the door to to uh, to suffering ultimately. And in opposition to all of this, opposition to the, the way of extrapolating things and fabricating, we do almost instantaneously. When you see a chair, immediately see it as a chair. You look around the room and you say, okay, this room is so big and, and, and so on, without realizing that all of that is at least two steps, three steps, four steps. Often more. You like it, you dislike it. These are the kinds of things you can react to. You have views about it. And all of this is in contrast to something that's more natural, more simple, and more pure. And that is 
and direct and, and unadulterated experience. So what Buddhism would say is truly natural, true nature. You know, truly natural, let's say, because in English that makes the most sense. Is experience. Whatever we can say about the world outside of us, the universe, the stars and the cosmos, it's all fine to talk about that. But... not natural it's 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 more artificial than simply to experience not not really in a judgmental way there's nothing wrong with all of this i mean we use it practically the buddha talked about the stars and the heavens and so on but he tried to make clear that there's something quite different from all of that and that is experience Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. Why did the Buddha mention these senses so much? If you're unfamiliar with this, with these ideas, it seems like why was he? You know, why is he talking about such obvious, banal things like the senses? He did the same thing. Descartes saw the same thing. Cogito ergo sum. Cogito is very important. Cognition, experience, consciousness. This is why meditation works. This is how meditation works, how mindfulness works. Mindfulness in, a, in the context of the present moment means non-fabrication. Non non-interpretative interpretative experience it's in the same way we we, we talk about um, this colloquial english like don't forget your your don't forget who you are when we tell a, a, a some we in old times anyway they would tell someone who is inferior to them they would say like inferior station don't forget yourself you forget yourself and we use this word forget in terms of forgetting something important. Not 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 in the past, but about the present, about about your situation. Like if you're in a library and you forget that you're in a library, right? You haven't forgotten something in the past. You've forgotten something about the present. And you start shouting and you say, Oh, I forgot we're in a library. You see, this is why sati, the word we translate as mindfulness, actually should be translated as remembrance. That's what it literally means. And it means to remember uh, the nature of the experience, the natural part of the experience. Seeing, hearing. Not that you're in a library, that is mindfulness, that is remembrance, but it's it's already conceptual, right? Saying that you're in a library is already a fabrication, a, a complex one. It involves lots of ideas that lead you to believe you're in a library.
And so when we say to ourselves, for example, seeing, seeing, hearing, hearing, feeling, feeling, we're reminding ourselves. We are reinforcing, uh, augmenting, encouraging the experience that is single step, that is not complex. Uh, that doesn't leave room for views, opinions, that isn't psychologically indeterminate, right? Because, as I said, your belief in why it's raining um, is, is, is indeterminate. You can't be sure. There is an uncertainty. There is an abstract nature to it. The reason why it's uncertain is because it's abstract. But you can't, you can't be tricked into thinking that you're seeing, for example. It's just not possible. And you could create some view that, yes, it is possible, uh, but that doesn't matter. It's not the fact that you can. It's the reason why you... It's not the fact that you can't. It's the reason why you can't. You can't because it's primary because it's part of nature. So from a perspective of views, that's I think important. It's still very theoretical. I don't, I, I don't know how impressive this is for people to hear, but I think it's an important step. But it's not the most important step. It's not the most important part of nature. Because the ramifications of the view that experience is the most natural thing, that it is nature. Uh, open the, the ramifications are that it opens the door to suffering, uh, ethics, let's say those two really, suffering and ethics. as a part of reality, because experience is not like physics. The physical reality has no ethics, has no suffering. What is suffering? Can a rock suffer? What would it mean to say that a physical entity suffers? It would say, well, suffering is just a chemical reaction in the brain, right? Something like that. It's an electrical stimulus in the nervous system. But from experience, that's, that's absurd. From a point of view of experience, pain is suffering, right? Loss is suffering. Not getting what you want is suffering. I think if you don't understand this and you read the Four Noble Truths, you wonder, why are these so important? You know, okay, I get it, suffering, but why is the Buddha so fixated on this? And... It's a bit foreign, I think. It's okay as a spiritual path, but we don't realize how significant these Four Noble Truths are. These are intrinsic to reality. Reality involves suffering. It's not just an impersonal thing where, yes, there's seeing and hearing and so on. There's also suffering. And why is there suffering? Because there's ethics. 
there are good and bad uh, qualities of mind, of experience. When you react to something, you react with greed or anger or delusion, and suffering is the result. And so there's there's not only a experiential ontological framework, there's also what we would call a soteriological framework. Soteriological involves, um, it refers to the concept of salvation. Right? The, I think, if I'm getting these terms right, uh, the idea that it's not just about, okay, now we know, now we know what exists and we've done the job. Uh, it's that there is a sort of a path, you know, uh, inherent in reality, and that's the path out of suffering. It's not something that you have to believe in or that you have to subscribe to Buddhism, or it's not something specific to Buddhism, you see. It's specific to, to experience. Experience involves pain, suffering, loss. It involves ethics and, and unethical behavior, unethical states. And so this is what Buddhism, this is where Buddhism uh, exists. This is nature according to Buddhism. Nature is experiential, it's ethical, and it's it revolves around the concept of suffering. Not, not how can we suffer more or... or you everything suffering. It's about understanding and, and freeing yourself from suffering. The Buddha, people asked the Buddha, what did he teach? And time and again he said, I teach only four things. What is suffering? What is the cause of suffering? What is the cessation of suffering? And what is the path that leads to the cessation of suffering? These are the fundamental questions to uh, experience, and experience is the fundamental building block of nature. So there you go. That's, um, that's nature according to Buddhism from my point of view, of course. Many people might argue and have different ideas, but that's video three, and I'm thinking I'll start making some Q&A videos, so I'm going to take the top voted questions on our meditation site, not here, if you ask questions on YouTube you won't get answers, sorry, but if you join our meditation community and upvote the questions there, I'll start I will take into account the upvotes. I'm not going to be controlled by them, but I'll look at questions that are meaningful and questions that I haven't answered before a thousand times. And I'm going to try, we'll see how it goes, try to answer them. But that's all for now. Thank you all for tuning in. We have 61 viewers at the moment, so that's pretty awesome for an impromptu video. Thank you all for being patient and keeping up. Stop arguing in the comment section. 
there should be you should emulate those people who are not commenting because it means they're listening closely. 64 now. Awesome. Okay, have a good day everyone. I'll see you from Florida next. Have a good day. I don't know how to end this. There we are.